Baptist ministry of the Presbyterian Church in America. So I kind of like to think of myself in two different ways. One is I'm kind of the, the mascot of the presbytery. Um, so I'm the mascot of the presbytery that gets sent on campus. Uh, and basically, I treat campus kind of like it's my parish. Uh, I'm on campus trying to get to know students, trying to connect them to uh, the gospel, trying to connect them to the local church. Uh, another way I like to think about RUF is RUF being the food truck of the local church. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen like a food truck that uh, comes from a brick and mortar restaurant. And the idea of this food truck is to take some of the best stuff from the restaurant and take it to the people. Uh, and the goal is not to create this amazing following for the food truck. The goal is to get people to come back to the restaurant. And that's what I'm trying to do on campus with RUF. We're trying to take the best, the, the, the best hits of the church and bring them on campus. So we're, we're preaching the gospel. We're doing small group ministry. We do one-on-one -on -one pastoral counseling. And our hope in this is not, again, that RUF is just going to be built up and be this amazing thing. Our hope is the local church. Our hope is that these students are going to catch a vision for what God is doing in the world and how they can be a part of it in the worship and work of the local church for a lifetime. Uh, I also am I'm married and I have a, a daughter as well who were hoping to be here, but my wife has a cold and so does our daughter, so they decided not to come, but they send their greetings as well. Uh, so this morning we're going to be looking at Psalm 96. I know this is your summer in the Psalms. I, I would like to see a P on the front of the summer, maybe summer in the Psalms. That's what we do when we do it at RUF, um, but I digress. Uh, but we're going to be looking at Psalm 96, Psalm 96 this morning. Uh, so one of my uh, favorite pastimes in the past couple years has been watching uh, streaming shows on, on Netflix. One that got taken off of Netflix in recent years, but is my favorite show, is The Office. Uh, very, very popular show, uh, increasingly so amidst, amongst the younger generation that I work with, which has kind of been fun for me. Uh, but in one particular episode of The Office, Michael Scott, who's the regional manager of Dunder Mifflin Paper Company, uh, decides that he is going to leave Dunder Mifflin, where he has worked for 15 years, and he doesn't actually have a plan of what he's going to do next. Uh, and so he kind of is trying to figure it out, and then eventually he decides that he is going to start his own paper company, because that's all he knows. And so he tries to poach all of these people off of Dunder Mifflin. None of them end up coming with him except for Pam, the receptionist. And so the first day of their new venture called the Michael Scott Paper Company, uh, they're kind of panicking because they're like, what did we do? We just left a good job and now we're having to start this new venture. And then Michael tells Pam, his partner in crime now, that he has an investor meeting. And she's, of course, very excited about this investor meeting. Maybe the company is starting out well. Uh, but if you've seen the episode, you know the investor meeting is with his nana um, at a local retirement community. So it's his grandma and a couple of her friends who are deciding whether they're going to give them a small sum of money to start things off. And so the meeting starts, and Michael starts off like this. He says, I've spent the last 15 years learning the ins and outs of the paper industry. With a lean, mean, fighting crew and low overhead, I think I can perform the same business at a much, much higher rate of profit. And his Nana says, how do you expect to turn a profit in this economy? She's surprisingly critical. And he says, by wanting it more, by working hard. And she says, what's your mission statement? And he says, um, my mission is stated as follows. 
I will not be beat. I will never give up. I am on a mission. That's the Michael Scott guarantee. And I offer same day free delivery. And his uh, grandma is, of course, very skeptical about this because she's not really sure what's going on. To which Michael responds, well, Nana, we don't have to sell paper. What do you want us to sell? You see, it's clear Michael has no idea what he's doing. He has no sense of mission. He has no sense of where he's taking these employees along with him. And the psalm we're looking at this morning, it's about God's mission. It's about what God's doing in the world. And I wonder if when we say the word God and mission together, if we tend to think maybe God is a little bit like Michael Scott, uh, that he's doing so much that you can't really distill what he's doing into one thing. Like, is God's work in the world, is it moving towards something? Is there a purpose to what God's doing? So as we look at this psalm today, we're just going to consider three questions. First, what is God doing? Second, where is he doing it? And third, how do we join in? So what is God doing? Where is he doing it? And how do we join in? So I'm going to read Psalm 96 for us. I'll pray, and then we can get started. So let's read Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for uh, this, this psalm that we're going to be considering this morning. And so, Lord, I, I do pray, as we're here, that you would open our eyes. That you would open our eyes and you would help us to see what it is that you are saying to your people this morning. Uh, Lord, we need your spirit to shed light. We need your spirit to bring life. And so I pray, Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you come and would you do the work which you do, which is, is bringing life where there was no life? So, Spirit of Resurrection, be here with your people. I pray that you may help us to love you and love our neighbor more and more um, because of this word. All these things I ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so God's mission. What is God doing? That's the first question that we're going to consider here. What is God doing? So if you would, look with me verse to verse 2. Verse 2 says that we are to sing to the Lord, to bless his name, to tell of his salvation from day to day. 
tell of his salvation. The first thing God is doing here is saving. God is in the business of saving. The people here gathered in worship are encouraged to tell of God's salvation from day to day. And I wonder what comes to mind when you hear that. Uh, I think for me, uh, when I hear salvation, I immediately think of uh, like getting saved. I think of kind of a revival or something like that, which I think that's part of what's going on in this passage. But when it talks about telling of God's salvation, it's not talking primarily about an internal experience of God. It's talking about God's objective historical work. For the people of God at this time, this probably would have referred to the Exodus, where God, in this dramatic fashion, called his people out of slavery and he freed them in order to worship him. And of course, there was a personal experience of that that was implied. So this is speaking about God's historical action and the accompanying experience of that that God's people have. So the the salvation spoken of here, it's not less than God saving individual souls. I I just think it's a lot more. And then it goes on in verse 3 to speak of God's marvelous works that he has performed. And this is the same Hebrew word that is used to describe what God did in the Exodus. It's the same word used again and again. Salvation here, again, it certainly includes individual souls, but it's speaking more about what God has done for his people in general. It's God's saving action in history. For the original audience, like we just said, this would have referred to the Exodus. And of course, for us, we think of the greater Exodus. We think of the incarnation of Jesus, the Son of God, who lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death, and was risen from the dead triumphantly. So the first thing that God is doing is he is entering into history and he is saving. God is saving. But what else? The second part of God's mission is ruling. Ruling. Uh, Look with me to verse 10. It says, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. He will judge the peoples with equity. And then in verse 11, he goes on to, to express the ramifications of this rule. The heavens are glad. The earth rejoices. The sea roars. The fields exult. The forest sings for joy. See, this joyful response by all of nature, it's a response that recognizes God's kingship. It recognizes God's kingship over all of creation. And this is what we pray for when we we pray the Lord's Prayer. We say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a prayer for the heavenly reality of God's kingship to come and to be recognized more and more on earth. So God's mission here, it is saving and it is ruling all of creation. But to put it maybe even simpler, what is God doing in the world? God is about the business of bringing joy to the world. In his saving and ruling action, he is bringing joy to the world. So that's what God's doing. But the second question we want to consider is, where is he doing it? Where is God doing it? And as the the old hymn says, Well, joy to the world. He's bringing joy to the world. So maybe it's just the world. Well, of course that's true. But I think we can be a little bit more specific. The question we need to ask here is not just where, like, in general is this happening, but but what does this joy that God is bringing, where do we see it most? 
Is God about the business of just saving a couple people and bringing them to a heavenly reality? Is God about the business of restoring creation? Is God just at work in his church? Is he at work in our culture around us? What's going on? Where is God's mission happening? Where is he doing it? I think first we see that it's in the church. First off, we see it's in the church. We're told in verse 2 that we are to tell of God's salvation from day to day. Tell of his salvation from day to day. That implies if we are going to be telling God's salvation, that we must have experienced it ourselves. In order to proclaim who God is, we have to know who he is. And we know who he is through his saving action. We see this in verse 1. It says, to sing to the Lord a new song. I know for many years that kind of it made me scratch my head a little bit. Is he saying that we can't sing old hymns? That's not what's being said here. What's being said here is that we are to inhabit these old hymns in a new way, with new vigor. It's, it's as if we are to, to proclaim the Lord's mercy. Remember, his mercies are new every morning. We are singing these old songs. We are singing of God's praise in a new way. We are exploring the depths of what his salvation means in us. So we see this in the church. We are to sing of God's mercies. We are to tell of his salvation day to day. The church is a group of people who has experienced the saving work of God and is called into the mission of God of bringing joy to the world. So first, this happens in the church. God is doing his mission in the church. But second, he's also doing it among the nations, among the nations. Throughout the Old Testament, there is a bit of a tension that that maybe you're familiar with. Um, I was just talking with Les earlier. Apparently, y'all are going through the covenants in your Sunday school class. And so in the Old Testament, God is a covenantal God. God is a covenantal God who who makes a covenant with a, a particular people. He chooses Israel to be his people. He says, you will be my people and I will be your God. So God has chosen a particular subset of people. But also, there's these very confusing passages in the Old Testament. For instance, Psalm 87. Psalm 87 talks about somehow amongst God's people are Egypt and Babylon. Egypt and Babylon, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, those are the bad guys. Those are the worst people. You could not pick someone more opposite than Israel in Egypt and Babylon. And yet somehow, mysteriously, they're going to be a part of God's people. So there's this tension that that runs throughout all of the Old Testament. How is God so committed to Israel, but also has plans for all of the nations? You see, the mission of God, it's not merely to just serve a small number of people. It's not that the church is just an end in and of itself. The church is entrusted with the mission of God in order to declare the glory of God to the nations. So it's as if the people of God, the first time that they hear Psalm 87, they're wondering how in the world are these enemies of God going to be brought into his kingdom? And it's funny because the answer is them. You're going to tell them. You're going to tell these people about the salvation of God. And we see this echoed throughout this passage. In verse 3, it says to declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among the peoples. And then in verse 7, we see that the families of the peoples, meaning every people group on earth, 
are supposed to ascribe to the Lord glory and strength and to bring an offering and come into his courts. See, this is a vision of an ever-expanding people of God. A people of God that is growing and growing across every tribe, tongue, and nation. You see, the mission of God is for all the nations to be brought in, to be subdued, and to live under the kingship of God. So the mission of God, it's going forward in his church, it's going forward among the nations, but we see also in this psalm that it's going forward in all of creation. All of creation. We see this throughout the psalm, but specifically in verses 11 and 12, uh, we see this language of, of the heavens themselves being glad. The earth rejoicing, the sea and all sea creatures rejoicing, fields exulting. If you're anything like me, it, this sounds like something maybe out of Lord of the Rings or, or Chronicles of Narnia. Like, I, I can't imagine anything like that. And the psalmist in writing this is probably not intending to speak literally that this is what's going to happen. He's not trying to say that somehow the fields are going to, you know, become alive and be like human beings. But I think what is being said is that there is a connection between what God is doing on earth among the nations and his creation. That there is a connection between God's mission and creation. The mission of God, it applies to all creation. Somehow, mysteriously, as people are reconciled to God and reconciled to one another, creation becomes more itself. Somehow, when the kingdom of God comes, a lion is more a lion than it was before. Somehow, when the kingdom of God comes, this earth is more itself than it ever was before. We see this echoed in Romans 8. It talks about how the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, eagerly awaiting the revealing of the sons of God. See, just like sin has implications for creation, so also does redemption. As the Christian hymn, Joy to the World, says, says he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And what this means is that God's mission is to de destroy all the effects of sin and death in this world. His mission is to destroy all of the effects of sin and death in this world. I think this is very clearly pictured um, in one of uh, Tolkien's novels, uh, The Return of the King. Uh, there's this climactic scene at the end where uh, Sam, one of the hobbits who has taken the ring to, to Mordor, he comes back and he interacts with Gandalf, who he thought was long dead. And he says this to him. He says, Gandalf, I, I thought you were dead, but then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What has happened to the world? And Gandalf responds, a great shadow has departed. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. I love the way that that's put. See, the, the mission of God, God bringing joy to the world, it means everything sad will come untrue. Everything sad will come untrue. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the, the large sadnesses that we see all around us and also the sadnesses that we carry in our heart? 
the lingering sadness of a broken relationship with your family, as well as the sadness that we see in our culture all around us, the king of life is going to triumph over all of them. Everything sad is going to come untrue. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. So we've seen what the mission of God is. We've seen the mission of God is to bring joy to the world. We've seen that this mission takes place in the church, it takes place among the nations, and it takes place among all of creation. The question needs to be asked, finally, how do we join in? What do we do with this? How do we become a part of this mission? I think we see this pretty clearly in our passage. Look at me first to verses 1 and 2. See, this psalm, it calls us to sing to the Lord. It says it three times here, sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord. And then moving on in verses 7 through 9, it tells us to ascribe to the Lord. Ascribe to the Lord, worship the Lord. These are kind of a similar idea. It's this idea of singing the praises of God, of coming together in worship. See, this is the first part of our joining in to God's mission. It is singing to the Lord. It is worshiping Him. It is saying to the Lord, you are good. And everything you do is good. And this worship implied here, singing to the Lord, it is certainly, uh, we, we tend to have, I guess, a dichotomy maybe in our mindset of whether worship is, worship is just coming to church and you, you, know, you gather together and you sing some songs and it feels very disconnected from how you live your life. But then there are other Christians who maybe think of worship as something that's all of life, right? You worship the Lord in everything that you do. And what I want to say uh, from this psalm, from all of the scriptures, you don't have to choose between those. There is such a thing as capital W worship, right? Where you come together in the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments and it fills you up and it is given to you. But there is also all of life worship where everything that you do, your job, your, your life as a grandparent, your life as a sibling, as an as a uncle, as an aunt, as a nephew, as a niece, all of these things are a part of singing to the Lord. You are declaring his kingship in everything that you do. We are to sing to the Lord in every square inch of our lives because it all belongs to the Lord. So we join in by singing to the Lord, but second, we join in by telling of his salvation. Uh, in verse three, after we're told to sing to the Lord, we are told to tell of his salvation from day to day. And we already talked a little bit about what the salvation means. But I want you to notice here there's a shift in this first section. The first couple of verses start with sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, and then it shifts, tell of his salvation. It's a shift from worship to evangelism. It's a shift from something that is vertical, giving praise to God, and something that is horizontal, telling your neighbors. How are these two things connected? How are we supposed to see a connection between our worshiping and our telling, our telling of God's salvation? How are they related? Um, I have a friend named Trey who I met in seminary. Uh, and Trey is one of the smartest people I've ever met in my entire life. Uh, in seminary, you're reading a lot of books. You're, doing, you're writing a lot of papers. And so most people respond to that by not reading anything else outside of seminary and instead just watching a lot of Netflix and, you know, trying to recover (laughs) 
and think about reading something maybe five years down the road. Uh, not so with my friend Trey. Trey could not get enough of reading and thinking. Uh, and during seminary, Trey uh, became captivated by this Danish existentialist philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard. And Trey would read Kierkegaard constantly. And it got to the point where when we were talking about things, when we were just having a conversation, Kierkegaard would come up. If I shared something with Trey about how I was behind on school, there was a Kierkegaard quote for that. Uh, if I told Trey that I was feeling sad, Kierkegaard quote. If I told him I was feeling happy, Kierkegaard quote. To the point where it got to be really annoying, honestly. Uh, and as I was friends with Trey over the years, eventually Trey came to me and he was sharing something that was going on in his life. And uh, what did I do but share a Kierkegaard quote? The question is, like, I, I was immediately shocked after I did it. It was almost like an out-of-body experience. Like, what? Like, how did that get in there? You see, it got in there because Trey loved Kierkegaard so much that he, he just couldn't help but talk about him. He couldn't help but talking about him, and, and it was infectious. It overflowed into me. You see, we intuitively understand that what we love is meant to be shared. You see, we preach about what we love. And Trey loved Kierkegaard, so he shared him with me any chance that he could. And I think the same is true, or ought to be true, of our relationship with God. If we love him, if we are consumed with worship of him, then we shouldn't have to spend all of our time thinking about strategies for evangelism or, or feeling bad that we don't do enough. We should simply be who we are. And we should tell people of his salvation from day to day. We should do that in our gathered worship, but we should also do that as we, as we go out in our work. See, we cannot help but share what we love with others. To truly love something is to desire others to love it. So I want to close with a word of application. What does it look like for us to do this? What does it look like for us to participate in God's mission? What does it look like for us to sing to the Lord a new song. For us to tell of his salvation from day to day. Uh, if you are a uh, kind of liturgically minded Christian, some are, some aren't. Uh, maybe you think about the church calendar every now and again. But we're in a, a phase of time called ordinary time, uh, which is a time where basically Christians are encouraged to digest all of the glories of the Easter season. Uh, if you, of course, if you've been to an Easter Sunday service, you know that it's kind of the pinnacle of the Christian year. There's something different about Easter Sunday. There's a joy about it that, that is infectious. And the great problem with, with Christianity in a lot of ways is that we don't carry that joy over into the rest of the year, do we? We lose that Easter joy. I came across this quote from, from N.T. Wright about this. He's a New Testament scholar. Uh, but he said this about Easter. He says, Easter is about the wild delight of God's creative power. We ought to shout alleluias instead of murmuring them. We should light every candle in the building instead of only some. We should give every man, woman, child, cat, dog, and mouse in the place a candle to hold. We should have a real bonfire, and we should splash water about as we renew our baptismal vows. Every step back from that is a step toward an ethereal or esoteric Easter experience. And the thing about Easter is that it is neither ethereal nor esoteric. It is about the real Jesus coming out of a real tomb 
and getting God's real new creation underway. He goes on and, and kind of casts vision for what our celebration of Easter should feel like. He says, Easter ought to be an eight-day festival with champagne served after morning prayer or even before or during with lots of alleluias and extra hymns and spectacular anthems. Is it any wonder people find it hard to believe in the resurrection of Jesus if we don't throw our hats in the air? Is it any wonder we find it hard to live the resurrection if we don't do it exuberantly in our church life? Is it any wonder the world doesn't take much notice about Easter if it's simply celebrated as a one-day happy ending tacked on to 40 days of fasting and gloom? See, we participate in the mission of God by being excited about it, by reflecting on what God has done for us and inviting other people into that. Another uh, scholar named Leslie Newbigin says, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is a community living it out. That is a fancy way of saying the only way that the gospel is going to be intelligible to people who don't believe it is when they see the church being who they're supposed to be. When they see the church living out the gospel, when they see the church proclaiming the joyful resurrection life, that is how people are going to understand the gospel. So if we want to be about the mission of God, we need to be resurrection people. We need to be excited about the resurrection. We need to be excited about the gospel. Why? Because Jesus Christ walked into death and he came out the other side. And not only that, he promises that he would take us with him. When we see what happened to Jesus, we have a preview of what will happen to us if we are united to him by faith. This is the sort of good news that we ought to be eager to share. This is the sort of good news that is infectious when we share it with people. And I will say, as a person who, who works with the younger generation, I know I've spent a long time trying to think about what it looks like to, to, to be cool, to be accessible to kids. And there's a temptation in us, uh, in the church, to feel like we have to play down part of uh, the Christian story. We have to talk less about theology. We have to talk less about Jesus in order for them to like us. In my experience, that's not actually what people want. Uh, the, the problem the younger generation finds with Christians is not that we talk too much about Jesus. It's actually that we don't talk enough. The problem the younger generation finds with, with Christians is that we don't live like what we say is true is true. So to participate in the mission of God, we, we need to drink deeply of the gospel, drink deeply of the good news of what Jesus has done for us, and live with Christian integrity in response to that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, that you love us and that you love us uh, enough to invite us into this beautiful mission of bringing joy to the world. Lord, that you have done that, um, that you are bringing joy to the world, uh, that you, you desired the redemption of, of us and of this world so much that you yourself became man and lived a life uh, in submission to so many limitations that you just didn't have to submit to, and then died a substitutionary death, and then you were raised. Lord, I pray that that story would captivate our hearts, that that story would be beautiful to us 
in new ways. And that, Lord, by your Spirit, you would empower us for participating in your mission. All these things I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.